Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 197. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today, pleased to be joined by someone that I've literally been following since around, I think, 2008 when I was a white belt, Ms. Roxanne Modafferi. Roxanne, how are you doing? Great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to have you here. I have to say, like I told you earlier before the show, it's kind of surreal here. I've been following the Happy Warrior since your days in Japan back in 2008, I want to say. I first discovered you, I think, on a Dog interview that you did a long time ago, back when you were centered over in Japan. And I've just been kind of following your activity ever since then. So it is super cool, kind of surreal to have you here on the show. But man, this is one that I've very much been looking forward to. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's exciting when somebody says that they've been following me for so long and then lists a bunch of facts like i remember you fought in smack girl i'm like you you really have been following me you're legit <laughs> you're a legit fan <laughs> well you and emily quack emily is also a longtime friend of the show as well and has been on the podcast many times so yeah i that's kind of where i got introduced to the whole smack girl thing is because i know she was part of that too but also just following your career in japan the thing i love about you too is the presence that you project i mean i remember back when i started jujitsu there was kind of the stereotypical wannabe alpha bro macho tribal tattoo image of what like an MMA fighter would look like. And then you came along and you're someone more like me. You're like a normal person. You're into like anime and nerd culture. And I love that about you. And you were the first one, I think, on the scene that I know of that really kind of challenged that perception of what an MMA fighter is supposed to look like. And that's why I, I loved you because I thought, man, Roxanne is just so normal. It's nice to know that there's normal <laughs> people doing the sport that I can relate to. And that's one of the things that I think is a huge contribution that you provided. So super cool to have you here on the show. You know, I think you're right. I don't know anybody else who's done that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hey, actually, that's probably as good an introduction as any. I think probably most of our listeners know who you are. But just in case, do you want to give just a quick intro in terms of who you are, what you've done and what you're up to these days? Oh, gosh, that's (laughs) that's a lot. (laughs) I guess I've just retired from fighting in the UFC, but... I'm doing jujitsu nowadays, you know, just focusing on my technique and getting better. You know, it was hard for me to focus on gi jujitsu when I was fighting MMA because I had to prioritize other things like kickboxing, kickboxing, (laughs) punching, punching people, like whatever. Yeah. So now I'm excited. I can go back to trying to strangle people. I'm trying to get better at the leg lock game. Man, 
So I've been getting tapped out by leg locks and my boyfriend says, well, actually the old school black belts have leg locks as their Achilles heel, so to speak. Haha. Because, <laughs> you know, we weren't really supposed to get into them until we got like to be a brown belt or whatever. But now these young people are doing leg locks. Like one of my, the teenagers, one of my former students is doing leg locks. I'm like, you're like 13, but <laughs> I don't know. I have like feelings about it, but regardless, you know, I'm really trying to get better at those so I can hang in the competitions nowadays. Oh man, yeah, I can I can relate for sure. I definitely remember my first exposure to expert leg lockers and it was a bit of a shock to me because I would be sparring against people who were, you know, they would be blue belts, but they just had this weapon in their arsenal that I was not equipped to defend. And if you're good at leg locks and you're sparring against someone who's not, it's like a cheat code. I mean, if you don't know how to shut that down, it doesn't matter how experienced they are. It's it is like a cheat code that just lets them get in there. So, it took a while for me to shore that up and I, I am far from a leg lock expert, but I have a, at least gotten marginally competent at not letting other people leg lock me, <laughs> yeah. which I guess is a good start. <laughs> yeah. Well, that wasn't really a life introduction, but that's what my, I've been doing lately. So hi, I'm Roxanne. I'm training leg locks now. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm also teaching jujitsu at Tribe Martial Arts and Fitness. I just finished my third book and um trying to find a job. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, that's actually what I wanted to talk specifically to you about is the books that you've done and specifically the philosophy that you espouse. So interestingly, we recently had a Nick Perler on the podcast, the head of the Perler Wrestling Academy in the States. And he was going on and on about how he just discovered the happy warrior philosophy. And he thought this is the greatest thing ever. And I thought, man, I got to put a, a footnote on that one because Roxanne Modafari is literally the happy warrior. If there's anyone who's going to be able to talk about that is going to be Roxanne. <laughs> so that's actually the topic, I believe, of your first book. It's the nickname you took into a lot of your fights, and it's kind of the mindset that I guess you're best known for. So with that said, I mean, let's have a book club here. Tell me all about it. So are you referring to a philosophy of the happy warrior, me happy warrior, or William Wordsworth's poem, the happy warrior? I'm going to leave it with you here to guide through the conversation in the way that makes the most sense. But I would say probably best to start with the poem because that's kind of the beginning of it. It's like the trunk of the tree that this whole philosophy is uh, built on top of, correct? Well, I just so happened to have brought it up on my website. Would you like me to read the first paragraph? <laughs> I would love it if you could read the first paragraph. <laughs> okay. The title is called The Character of the Happy Warrior by English poet William Wordsworth. Who is the happy warrior? Who is he that every man in arms should wish to be? It is the generous spirit who, when brought among the tasks of real life, hath wrought upon the plan that pleased his boyish thought, whose high endeavors are an inward light that makes the path before him always bright, who, with a natural instinct to discern what knowledge can perform, is diligent to learn, abides by this resolve and stops not there, but makes his moral being his prime care. That's pretty sweet. A little complicated, but it seems <laughs> <laughs> like I actually didn't know this poem existed until a bunch of fans told me about it. Oh, interesting. My nickname was actually given to me by a fan on MySpace. Rest in peace, MySpace. <laughs> oh, wow. Talk about being an OG in the MMA space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, later on, someone said, yeah, you're just like the poem. And I'm like, what poem? So I looked it up. So yeah, it's I didn't even realize, but that's, I wonder if that fan actually knew the poem or 
if they just made up the nickname off the top of their head, I wish I could thank them. I don't remember who it was. <laughs> well, hey, I got to ask then on that topic, what does that mean to you? What does that poem mean to you? And how does that jive into your life philosophy? It kind of sounds like you arrived at this thing independent of the history here, but I'd love to know what the idea of a being a happy warrior means to you as someone who has had success at the, you know, at the highest levels in MMA, someone who's a jujitsu black belt, you know, an OG MMA fighter. What does that mindset mean to you? And how have you applied that on the ground when you go into these high pressure scenarios? Yeah, absolutely. Just looking at the poem, it says, you know, he has a generous spirit. He endeavors to have an inward light. The path for him is always bright. He always is diligent to learn, makes his moral being his prime care. So it seems like the poem is referring to somebody who tries to have, you know, a lightness about him, a brightness, positivity, always wanting to learn, always trying to be moral, trying to be a good human. And that's what I was raised to be and to do, you know, by my my mother and my father, especially my mother. She always told me, never end your sentence with a negative statement, always end it with a positive statement. So anytime I would, you know, complain about something or tell a story like this happened and then this happened, I made it a personal challenge to always finish that with something positive. So if I had a rough day, I would say, oh, this happened and this bad thing happened. But at least I got home before six o'clock, like anything. So, but that really helped me. It really helped my brain think more positively and I would feel less bummed out about whatever. So I always kept that verbiage in my mind, like always trying to think of something positive really helped me out in all these situations. So when I was training for a fight, you know, if I was having a hard time, I would just try to count my blessings thinking, wow, I have a fight. I'm excited. This is going to be great. You know, I'm in pain now in training, but I'm so excited for this fight. I have this opportunity, things like that. Well, that's really interesting to me because we get a chance to talk to a lot of uh, high performance athletes here on the show. And one of the things that I have noticed as a common thread to the point where I kind of wonder if it's almost an epidemic within our martial art here is a lot of these people are really freaking miserable all the time. I mean, it is clearly incredibly hard to carry with you that kind of burden from a performance standpoint. And I get it. I mean, as someone who works a desk job myself, I cannot imagine what it would be like to have to go and compete in a fight in a cage with literally hundreds of thousands of people watching your every move and then going and judging you on social media after. I mean, that is a a level of stress burden that I think most people cannot possibly relate to. And I think there's something to be said about your philosophy here of being able to achieve a better perspective, have an abundance mindset. That is something that I think most of our athletes need to really be coached in, right? I mean, performance is about more than just leg locks and bare and bolos. It's about being able to maintain your mental resilience when the times get hard and being able to maintain that positive outlook. So I'd love to unpack exactly how you got to that point where you were able to do that. I mean, your mother, it sounds like, brought that to the table with you, but is that something that you always had or did you struggle with that when applying it in the martial arts? Just to go back to part of what you were saying is I think that's a good point. Like our coaches train us on the actual fighting techniques, but no one ever really coaches us about how to deal with stuff mentally. Like some of our coaches are really good. And like my coach, John Wood always said, you know, you're always going to doubt yourself. And, you know, he said some good mental stuff that helped a lot. But yeah, I was one of my training partners. I specifically remember a conversation. They were so stressed out, like, oh, I'm starving. I'm thirsty. I'm exhausted. Everything hurts. I can't wait to just fight. And I'm like, are you even going to enjoy this? Like, you know, like, gosh, 
you know, but then everyone doesn't want to go get counseling. You know, I, I've never actually talked to a sports psychologist, but yeah, I wish there was more guidance for people. It's competing is certainly a whole different ball game and, you know, you want to enjoy what you're doing. And yeah, my mom's philosophy of being positive all the time really helped me. And I think it might also be my personality as well. Like I wake up excited to live. And also I think I learn very well from other people. People tell me stories about their experiences and I always try to learn a lesson like, okay, I'll, I'll not do that. Or may, someone maybe passed away early and they, they said like, oh, be, be glad that you have your life. You have one more day. I don't have one more day. And I think to myself, oh, all right, well, I'm going to wake up every day. Like, gosh, I'm glad that I'm not that sick person. Like I, I don't have to worry about only having a couple of days left. Like I think about that stuff. I take it very seriously. It doesn't just go in one ear, not the other. Like I really try to learn from other people's lives and it helps me appreciate what I have. And I always try to remind myself of that when I'm suffering in some way. Yeah, yeah. And I can imagine that suffering is probably a big part of the job, right? You mentioned that uh, some people want to just get over the the training process and get to the fight. I mean, I don't know. All of those things sound difficult to me. They all sound like suffering to me. <laughs> the training for the fight, the the weight cutting, the prep, the diet, and then, of course, the actual fight and the reactions thereafter. I mean, all of that is a, a pressure cooker environment. And so it is no wonder that so many athletes struggle with this. But uh, yeah, I'd love to unpack how, how you go about this. You know, you talk Talking about this in your book and your philosophy. Is this something that where as a coach, do you have guidance for people, especially earlier on in their journey, who might struggle with things like self-doubt, mindset, imposter syndrome, all of that stuff that just seems so common to performance sports and combat athletes in general? Hmm. It's interesting. I've spent my whole life as a martial artist who started fighting. So, you know, I entered martial arts doing Taekwondo as a teenager, then I, because I loved it, then I did judo because I loved it, jujitsu because I loved it, and I started competing in judo and jujitsu to prove that I had skills and I could win and I could apply the skills that I've trained to be another person. And that was the challenge. I really wanted a challenge. So after I did jujitsu, I thought, man, well, I need, I want more of a challenge. And then I heard of MMA and I thought, gosh, that's the ultimate challenge. I won't be able to live with myself if I don't try the ultimate challenge. So I kind of went to it in that way. So then suddenly in like middle of the year 2000 something, people started calling us athletes <laughs> instead of fighters. So I remember Shannon Knapp was referring to her Invicta athletes. She said, oh, my athletes, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I'm an athlete? <laughs> what? <laughs> so I didn't really think of myself like that. And I didn't really think of any of those things you just mentioned. So because I wasn't training to be a professional athlete in my mind, I was just training and lift. Okay. And then I had to start conditioning to get stronger, but that was just because I had my goal in mind. So I, I never really considered those things that you just talked about. I feel like I'm almost not qualified to talk about them, but I'm actually the most qualified. <laughs> you know, I've never studied any psychology, but I have my own way of dealing with it. Well, that that's actually perhaps the the most useful information here, because the challenge that a lot of jujitsu athletes I know have is they feel that it's hard to relate with being a high level jujitsu athlete because there are just so few of them. And sometimes someone who has done it before is the best person to actually provide that advice, because if, if nothing else, they're a role model, right? They're an example of how it can be done and they're proof that it can be done. So that is something that I know a lot of people struggle with in terms of things like 
tournament jitters or just general depression, the feeling that you're not good enough. Yeah. I get a lot of athletes who I know for a fact are in the top 1% in the world, but they still feel like they're not good enough. And just there's never that point where they become happy with their results. And I, I just yeah. wonder, is that something you ever struggled with where you were just beating yourself up and you found a way to get to the back to the positive Steve, I still struggle with that, you know, especially now I'm on a massive losing streak. It really sucks and it's really hard on my self-esteem. I feel like such a loser. I haven't won a fight grappling or MMA in two years. It's really, really hard. So I just, I just tell myself, regardless of the win or loss, the way I mentally approach competitions is that I enjoy training and I've trained these techniques and I want to challenge myself to see if I can do these techniques and training. So the way I deal with fight jitters is I try not to focus on the big picture. I try not to focus on that I'm in an arena. Oh, there's cameras. Oh, there's people. Oh, my coaches, I'm going to let them down. Like I try not to think about any of that. All I try to think about is okay, get my grips, do the takedown, established position. If she does that, I'm going to do this. Like I really just try to focus on the game and try not to let the stressors enter my mind. I just keep repeating myself like in the back room in, in the UFC when they said, okay, Roxanne, you're up. Oh my gosh, it's like the worst. I'm like, ah! So I just, so when I line up and my coaches are behind me, they're holding the bucket and you know, they're like massaging my shoulders. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to touch gloves. She's going to punch me. I'm going to do one, two slip. I just keep reminding myself of what I'm going to do. And if I fill my brain with technique, I don't feel as nervous about the situation. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. It's interesting because a while ago we had judo Olympian Travis Stevens on the podcast and he was talking about how he manages anxiety and jitters and he went to a performance coach who gave him some advice and that advice is very similar to what you suggested. Oh, really? Tell me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he talked about technique visualization and, and just visualization in general. And I always thought that when you're talking about visualization, you're talking about close your eyes and imagine yourself on top of the podium, you know, and getting surrounded by like flowers and, you know, groupies and stuff like that. But what apparently Travis had suggested is when visualizing, instead of visualizing the result, visualize the stimulus that is likely to give you anxiety. So when he's visualizing to prepare for the fight to calm himself. He's not visualizing, you know, me on top of the podium winning. He's visualizing the feeling of having your fingers taped up, you know, the, the way that it feels to walk onto the mat, right? The way that it, the sounds of being in the bullpen, you know, what your breath feels like at that moment. And by doing that, his thought is he is sort of attuning himself to the stressors of the situation. And that was much more productive for him than trying to focus on the result and the outcome and dreaming oh. of what it would be like to win that Olympic medal. And so he is, it's kind of a, an exercise of bringing yourself into the present moment and focus on the focusing on the sensory things rather than getting caught up in your mind about where you want to go and what you want to achieve. And, and that sounds very similar to what you're talking about, too. Interesting. Yeah, similar, except I try not to think about the things that are making me nervous. <laughs> but I try to think of, you know, the positive combinations that are landing that I'm hitting. But um, no, I can see his aspect too. maybe some things work for different people. Yeah, yeah. It's a, a similar but slightly different approach, I think. But it, it all comes down to the same thing in a lot of ways of where you're trying to make yourself comfortable with the fight environment, with the right. high stress environment, so that when you get there, it feels as close to business as usual as possible. Yep, I agree.
Yeah. So I would ask, I mean, when you're teaching and when you're coaching, do you ever have that experience where your students are clearly a little bit scared or anxious or they just don't quite feel comfortable with the technique? And what do you do in those cases to kind of give those people a bit of a pep talk? I've had students in a tournament. I had a little girl who started crying because she was scared and didn't want to go out and fight. That makes sense. I'm not really in class, though. <laughs> well, th- I mean, that's actually kind of the, the perfect time, right, is when you're up on the big stage. I would say, what do you do in that kind of situation? How do you help people overcome that hurdle? Man, <laughs> the several times it happened, well, with her, she actually didn't stop crying. Let's see, one little boy didn't didn't go back out. One girl went back out. We told her that she was brave and that she could do it and she had the skills. And even if, you know, she didn't get the results she wanted, you know, she should still try really hard. And she kept crying, but she fought. I was really (laughs) proud of her. She kept crying while fighting, lost it, but she fought. That's actually pretty amazing. Crying and fighting all the way through something I can relate to very much. Yeah, they usually stop the fight, the match, if the kid's crying, but I think because she started when she was crying. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't know, man, I could use some, maybe they were just too far gone. You know, I could definitely use some advice on that one. But (laughs) yeah, I mean, little kids too, like, I don't want them to be miserable and traumatized either. But yeah, I don't know, for for the adults, it's a different story. And I don't know, I haven't really, I don't know. I've been with my one of my best friends for MMA, and she's the kind of person who wants to get angry. Like, I'm going to effing smash! Yeah. Roxy, hype me up! And I'm like, oh my god, like, <laughs> I'm not a hyper, I'm like the calmer. <laughs> I was like, go out there and elbow her face! Like, I didn't know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I guess that's an important distinction, too, is that different people respond to different things, right? Some people do respond very well to that to that hype train of just like, let's crank the energy level up to 11. But some people, I've never been like that. I need to feel confident that I know what I'm doing. Very similar to what you talked about. For me, I will feel a lot better if I feel like I've put in the work and I've done the best job to prepare that I can. And from that point, whatever happens, happens. But for me, that's the thing that makes me feel better. But I know some people want to go and listen to loud music and jump up and down in the bullpen. And that's the thing that's going to make them happy, right? Right, right. Yeah. So I would love to know, because a topic that we want to explore here on the show a lot is how to deal with loss and when things don't go your way. Because the reality is, I mean, even if you're the absolute best in the world, everyone loses more than they would like, right? No one gets out of this thing with a perfect record. So the way that you deal with loss is such a key factor. And, you know, you mentioned that you, you've had some tough losses lately. What has that been like for you mentally? And how do you accommodate that and cope with that? Steve, I'm not a good person to ask. I get really depressed. I really feel like it's a blow to my self-worth. But I basically always tried to tell myself like, all right, that Roxanne that lost that I want to kill that Roxanne. So that Roxanne's going to go away because I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to train and get stronger. So that Roxanne's going to disappear. They're no longer going to exist because I'm going to build the strength and technique up so that I'll become a new me. I'll morph like a Pokemon. So I'll become new and then I'll be able to win my next fight so that other me will disappear. Gone. I like how you say I'm not the best person to answer. And then you give a freaking amazing answer. (laughs) That was fantastic. But no, I love that. And I've 
sometimes felt that that is the best way to do things too, to kind of like put a bit of distance between your past self and your yeah. and who you are and to realize that, you know, as I think it was Alan Watts who said, you have no obligation to be the person you were five minutes ago, right? That person oh. is dead and you can bury them and move on and be a different person yeah. and creating that mental gap in between who you were and who you want to be can be very, very helpful for sure. Yeah, I have to do that. Like even now I'm, but I still struggle with those things. Like they're still a part of me, but I, I want to leave them behind. <laughs> but I just try to fo- like, my boyfriend is awesome. He's a fighter too. My fiance, excuse me. He tells me things like, you're not getting paid to win. You're getting paid to fight and you get bonuses to win, right? That's for MMA. You're getting paid to prepare and perform and do your very best and not give up and make weight, of course. So as long as I do that, I should be proud of myself. And in hindsight, looking back, I can also say that I've always done the best I can possibly do to prepare. So I should be proud of me. And, you know, the other person's fighting back. It's not like you're writing an essay and then the teacher's going to grade you A plus and you're in complete control of all the research and everything. Like, no, the other person's trying to foil you. So there's a myriad of possibilities that could go into a fight. So got to give myself a break. Yeah, definitely. It's such a hard performance environment because like you mentioned, in a lot of high pressure environments, it's up to you to just perform and do your very best. But in a fight sport, you have this other person who's actively trying to work against you and to stop you. So it's not like doing a dance where it's all about how well can you execute on your training. There's more than that. There's this other level of you have an adversary who's trying to make you fail (laughs) and only one of you can succeed, right? You can't both succeed at the same time. So. What's going to happen and how mentally do you prepare for that? It's one of the things that I find very unique and interesting about fight sports. Indeed. Yeah. So I would ask as someone who both is is very well versed in jujitsu and in MMA, what do you think of the culture difference between the two of them? I mean, I know that jujitsu kind of has this reputation of being more laid back, but I don't know if that's really true in practice. Like I said, I know there's a lot of really high strung jujitsu people. Do you feel that that happiness and mindsets are generally handled better in one of those sports than the other? Yes. Yes. I think, you know, both MMA and jujitsu have evolved I do think that jujitsu players are more laid back to in a certain degree. Like, I think actually there's a difference between striking sports and grappling sports. Like, just the personality of people who love kickboxing and the personality of people who prefer jujitsu. Like, I can tell there's a difference, right? So, I don't know. I've always felt that a big part of that might just be the marketing of where the sports came from, right? I mean, jujitsu was very much popularized because it was intended to be the martial art that worked for everybody, right? You don't need to be a super athlete. You don't even need to want to fight people to do jujitsu and even to get relatively good at it. So I think that tends to attract people who are more casual in their outlook. And what I see a lot of the time is jujitsu people, they almost operate and run the sport more like a, a wellness activity, like yoga. There's a lot of cult- cultural overlap with how a yoga club would feel or how a surfing club would feel versus an actual competitive fight sport where things are much more scientific and clinical. It's a very interesting distinction. And as a jujitsu person, I see this a lot when I go and I train with wrestlers or MMA people. They have a totally different mindset about how to grind and what they have to do. 
Yes, that's an excellent explanation. Yeah, for sure. So do you, I mean, I'd be curious to know, do you see that in practice or do you have trouble switching mindsets when you go into fight mode like that? Do you find that you have to balance these two pieces of your life where you're a BJJ person, but also an MMA person? It's been very interesting because when I was a teenager, I started out with Taekwondo and striking sports. And then I had this complete mind shift where I told my mom, mom, I don't want to hit people anymore. Find me a martial art that doesn't involve punching people. So she found me judo and jujitsu. And I never regained that desire to hit anybody. So I just did MMA, like I said, because I wanted the challenge. So I basically forced myself to do kickboxing, which might explain why I'm not, I could be better at it. (laughs) I never really had an affinity to learning it after that. So I've never really wanted to hit anybody. I just wanted to use... I wanted to win and make people give up without hurting them. That's always been my philosophy throughout my entire MMA career. It just so happened I got good at mounting people and throwing elbows. But <laughs> they were they're blocking it. I was always happy. Like I I won a couple of matches and then after the fight I saw that they had blocked most of the elbows and they weren't all bloody or anything. And I just won because the ref pulled me off. I was like, Yay, they're not injured. But yeah, I often, especially later in my career, I struggled going to practice because I felt like some of my other female teammates just wanted to fight me in the gym. And I just wanted to do the moves. I just wanted to get a little resistance on the techniques I was training. I didn't want to have like a battle like in the gym. So I struggled with that because my mindset was different than the other MMA fighters. So yeah, it was hard. That is something that I have always found interesting is that, I mean, yes, there are MMA fighters who are, they want to go in there and inflict violence, but there are also a lot of MMA fighters who quite notably hate the act of fighting. They do it because they love the martial arts or the training or they want to achieve the accomplishment, but the actual act of hurting someone is something that they just absolutely despise. Oh, really? There are more MMA fighters? Like that? Well, I remember Demi and Maya giving a big speech about this and how his objective, I I can't remember. Oh, yeah. It might have been after the Chael fight. I don't remember what it was, but he said that his goal is to go in there and win without hurting his opponent or something to that effect. Oh, yes, I remember that. That's why I started started being a fan of Demi and Maya after that. I was like, oh, I love this guy. His philosophy (laughs) is the same as mine. Yeah, me too. And I, I find that to be one of the most interesting things about the the whole happy warrior mindset is, man, that's got to be a hard thing to balance. Because on one <laughs> hand, you want to be happy, you want to be peaceful. But on the other hand, your job is to go in there and punch some poor schmuck in the face until they give up or get knocked <laughs> out, right? So it's like, you have to be almost two different people living in the same headspace at the same time. Yeah, but it's, it's kind of like, if you get backed into a corner and someone's going to try to murder you and you grab their knife, you're going to probably stab them to save your life. That's like kind of the same mentality I have. Like, all right, I got to do this thing. Let's get it over with sort of thing. Yeah. Well, that actually is an interesting approach to kind of make it like clinical where I'm not doing this because I want to. I'm doing this because I have to. It's a survival thing. I do have a follow up on that, actually. A common problem that a lot of hobbyists and casual people, myself included, have with jujitsu is hesitation in pulling the trigger. This comes up a lot. One of the most common questions people submit to the podcast is like, Steve, I'm having trouble pulling the trigger when I'm training. I hesitate. I wait. I don't have confidence in trying to do the move that I can. And I wonder if there's that's an example of these two sides of the personality where, I mean, for some people, maybe it comes naturally or maybe they've trained themselves to go into fight mode and kill mode. But for some people, they really struggle to do it. And I'd, I'd love to know, is is there a way to switch between 
between those two aspects of yourself to control that? Or what do you do if that kind of thing just doesn't come naturally to you? Oh, gosh, I don't I've never experienced that. So I'm not really sure. I think I've just watched so many like anime fighting shows that I just <laughs> I just say like, all right, now's the time. And I power <laughs> up and the, the key energy flies off of my hair and I just go like, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, th- that is actually an interesting, almost borderline visualization method that you're describing there, right? It's kind of like a pre-fight ritual to hype yourself up, it sounds like. Heck yeah. <laughs> is Now, I'd love to know, is that something that you actually consciously, deliberately do when you're going into a fight? Do you like try to go into like anime over 9000 mode in your own head? Yeah, I do. But especially when I'm having a hard time, like if I keep getting hit and I'm not being successful, I just bite down on my mouthpiece and I just... I used to think visually about my favorite characters like Naruto or Goku who really didn't have an option. They had just had to keep fighting. Now I don't even have to visualize it anymore. It just became such a big part of me. You know, it sounds, I almost feel silly saying it, but they're really a big inspiration just to see heroes like just bite down and go. Like you can't hesitate. You just have to go. So I think I, I trained that into myself. Yeah. I, I think the common thread that I'm hearing here from a lot of what you're saying is you try to come up with ways to make things just an objective part of the job. So yes. you're not spending your time getting your head space into it, but it's more just, look, this is clinical. We have to do this because we have to do this. We've done the work. Let's focus on just doing it and separate yourselves from the emotion and the what ifs. And that's got to be a hard thing to do, though, when you got so many people watching you, right? Yeah, I guess so. You know, I, I try to have less less mental clutter I remember a couple times where I had thoughts going around in my head and I remember losing those fights and I just was thinking to myself, oh no, I'm on bottom. Oh no, she's doing this. Oh, my knee is hurting. But then those are the fights I lost as opposed to like, if I shut myself up, like, okay, stop thinking, just look. And like, I had quiet in my brain. Those were the best fights. Like I didn't think about anything. I didn't worry about anything. I just shut myself up mentally. Yeah. And it's, it's so hard to get to that state, right? I mean, even, even in a low stress environment, actually, it might even be harder to do in a low stress environment where you are trying to pull yourself into the present moment, but your brain is trying to run at a hundred miles an hour doing different things. Yes. I'd be curious to know, Roxanne, do you try things like meditation or any kinds of exercises to calm the mind? Or is it basically just watching anime whenever you're not training? <laughs> no, I, I don't really know how to meditate. I get bored, but I I like to go for a jog and then I just let my mind wander. Maybe that's a kind of meditation. Like a, kind of like a physical active meditation where you're just getting out there and just moving the body, sounds like. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I think for a lot of people, that's what jujitsu itself is, is it's uh, an excuse to just go onto the mats and put aside whatever was bothering you during the day, just focus 100% on, on the moment at hand. I mean, it is, as we've said many times, it is hard to worry about what's happening at the office when you're on the mats and some giant dude is sitting on you trying to strangle you, right? <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. So now here's something that I, I would be curious to know, because you talked about this a bit when it comes to things like geek culture, things like whether it be anime, video games, anything like that. Is that something that you think actually has applicable fighting benefit? Did, not not saying that you're going to learn jujitsu from watching Dragon Ball or anything, but do you think that you can actually bring mindset lessons in or even just some sort of calming practice from other forms of media and bring that into a fight mindset? Is there a benefit to studying those kinds of things? I think so. Yes. Mindset benefits. That's a good way to put it. I, I think so too. Can you give me some examples? Because I'd love to know specifically how you, you bring this world of media into your actual fight practice. Well, 
Naruto always says, I will never back down. I will never go back on my word. And it kind of just means once you've made a decision, you don't stop. There's no option. You just keep going, you know, and once you take away the, oh, should I do it? I don't feel like it. Like once you take that away, you can do it. That's an interesting point, too, is just people putting up mental barriers about why they they can't do things. So what do you do in that situation? Do you ever have those kind of imposter feelings where you just feel like, man, I can't do this. I'm just not good enough or it's just not going my way. Is that normal? And what do you do when that happens? I'm not sure what you mean by imposter. Give me an example. Yeah, sure. So I'm talking specifically about what they call imposter syndrome, which is just this feeling that I'm not good enough to be where I am. And this is very common amongst high performers where despite the fact that they're performing at the highest levels, they often have massive self-doubt about whether they're good enough to be there. And I I wonder if that's something that that you've had to deal with and and how you do deal with it if it is something you've dealt with. Oh, interesting. Well... (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't be in the UFC if I didn't deserve to be there. And I've had some, you know, I I fought for the UFC in 2013. I lost. They didn't sign me. So I wasn't good enough. Then I fought again in 2017. I fought, but I put on such a good performance. They signed me. So I just kept telling myself, hey, they signed you. You're good enough. I mean, that's a great illustration, though, of, you know, you had a setback and you believed in yourself and you stuck with it. And on attempt number two, it went as according to plan, right? But you know what? I don't know. I feel like one thing my boyfriend said to me lately, you know, I'm trying to find a job. And he said, why don't you apply for this job? And I said, I don't I can't do that job. Like, I'm not qualified. And he said, why don't you apply anyway, Roxanne? Don't forget, you are a highly intelligent woman. You are an excellent problem solver. You can figure out how to do things. And then that made me think back to certain things in my week. Like I ran into problems and I solved them. I'm a very creative thinker. You know, for example, I was doing substitute teaching and the home teacher didn't leave very explicit instructions. They said, idiom warm up with an idiom. And I'm like, an idiom? So I'm supposed to teach an idiom? Like, what does that mean? So I just made it up and I just taught whatever, like, it's raining cats and dogs. So I was teaching English. But, um, and like other things, like I couldn't log in to the website. So I had to write the test on the projector or whatever. So I don't know, but it just made me realize that I, sometimes we get more stress worrying about things that haven't happened yet. But when we actually are accosted by the problem, we handle it. And that's, it's not even as bad. So I just try to keep telling myself that like, if there's a problem, I'll just handle it. (laughs) It might not be wonderful, but I'll handle it. Yeah, it's. Uh, I saw someone post something about this recently on some social media site, and they were talking about how, you know, most of the worst things that are ever going to happen in your life, they're only going to happen in your head, oh. right? Most of the worst moments of your life are just completely going to be in your mind because you're worrying about what ifs that will never actually come to pass. Indeed. Yeah, and you bring up some good examples there of just learning on the fly. I remember, again, you talking about this when I first started learning about you, that I believe you were, a, you were an English teacher in Japan, correct? Am I remembering that right? Correct. Yeah. Hey, I got to ask, what inspired you to move to Japan? I Because this is something I've always, you know, fantasized about doing is just packing up the bags and going somewhere else. But what led to that decision? Well, I wanted to become fluent in Japanese and I wanted to live there because I love the culture and the language. So I that's why I found the job teaching English and I moved there. That's a good reason. <laughs> hey, what what inspired you to move back, though? Because it sounds like you're back in the States now. Yeah, I really... I miss it a lot. You know, I wish I could have made more of a life there, but mm. I got the opportunity to fight on the Ultimate Fighter 
And that was my dream. So I decided to quit my job and move back for the chance to be on The Ultimate Fighter. Yeah, that'll do it for sure. Well, on this note here of of just happiness, is it possible to ever really be truly happy if you are a combat athlete? And I ask ask this because, of course, everyone wants to be. And I mean, I know we're espousing the, the happy warrior mindset here, but is it ever possible to really be like an enlightened, what, 100% happy Buddha style, you know, guru where you're literally just enlightened and you're always happy? Or is that just not the nature of the sports that we're in? Steve, I think that we are happy, but we just forget to realize it. So every once in a while, we should stop and say, oh, hang on. By the way, you know you're happy, right? Yeah, I'm happy right now. Like, this is great. Okay, proceed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that that makes a ton of sense. Because it doesn't last. Like, we always want to get better and we're always unsatisfied with things, but that's the way it's got to be. So let's just pause now and then, remind yourself you're happy when you're happy, and then you can proceed to struggle. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I have this problem where I always have things I want to do and I just, I get obsessive about them and I'm so focused on doing them. And in the event that I actually succeed at doing what I want to do, I'm happy for like 10 seconds and then I move on to something else. And it makes me realize I'm spending a lot of my life just being kind of unhappy because I'm so focused on something that may or may not happen in the future. I'm not really just enjoying what's happening right now. And that, that is something I personally struggle with. And I'm, I'm pretty sure it's a common thing amongst most people in uh, in MMA and jiu-jitsu as well. Yeah, I think so. Do you think, and I'd love to know this, do you think that that is a, a necessary part of performance? I mean, is it possible to really sustain a, at a high level if you're actually truly happy and like enlightened and content and just you're, you're happy with what you are? Because I know that for a lot of the people who do really, really well in the sport, they are, they're never happy. They're completely miserable. And I wonder to what extent would they have the same drive if not for the fact that unfortunately they're completely completely miserable. Like, is it possible to balance those things where you can be happy while at the same time achieving those goals that are very, very hard to achieve? Well, I think you're right. And you have a point, you know, if you're satisfied, you have no motivation and impulse to try harder, you know, so you have to be somewhat unsatisfied in order to keep pushing yourself. Yeah, it's kind of a tricky thing, right? Because you have to simultaneously try to be happy and dwell on the things that are going well for you. But also, you still have to be willing to kick yourself outside of your comfort zone because you want to achieve something new and you want to grow as a person. So it's a tricky thing because it feels like these two things don't align, right? It feels like happiness. We often, when we think of happiness, we think of contentedness. And when we think of contentedness, we think of status quo, keep it as is. But you've got to find a way to be happy while still trying to strive for more. And I think that's a hard balance for people to strike. I think you're right. I would ask then, let's talk about the books here because you mentioned that. Yes, please. Yeah, you've got now three books on the topic of your life, your story, and this happy warrior philosophy. So probably the best resource to dig into this. Give me a bit of info here about what led you to write these books and what's in them and what you're communicating with them. I'm so excited. I finished my third one. So... (laughs) I think my life is an adventure, so I wanted to write an adventure book. So my first book, Memories of a Happy Warrior, is about me when I first went to Japan for my one-year exchange student program as a junior in college. So I I lived with a host family, I joined a gym, I fought three times, I met Kaoru Uno, I fought the daughter of a Yakuza. It was awesome. (laughs) Then I continued that with my most recent book, Memories of a Happy Warrior 2, and I 
continued from where I left off. You know, I graduated college, I moved to Japan. I wrote about what it was like living there. I know that, you know, not everyone lives in Japan. So I tried to give some details about what it's like riding the train, what it's like joining a gym there, their philosophy. And I also tried to include my thought process. Like if this thing happened to me, you know, I talked to myself, I included some self-talk, how I would support myself mentally. You know, I made, I made friends as well. And also I talked about how I got the ultimate fighter, not offer, but I tried out. Then I got the offer. I moved back to the States. After that, I wrote about how I fought in Invicta, just all these things. I basically outlined my entire career and some key fights in my career in my <laughs> third book. So, and it pretty much finishes in February of this year when I retired from fighting. Nice. Hey, if I can ask, what was the inspiration for retiring? Just felt like you'd done everything you wanted to do or just passed that phase in your life? I'd love to know uh, what led to that. A couple of things. One thing was that I started being affected by blows to the head. Oh. So like I mentioned, I felt like some girls in the gym were trying to fight me and then I would leave the gym with headaches and I know that's not good. And I, I've had concussion problems before where like somebody just kept hitting me so hard and I'm like, hey man, can you lighten up? And they wouldn't. They did for like a minute and then they went back if I hit them. It's like, why do you have this ego? Like, <laughs> I don't need to hit you hard. Like, so then I was like, man, this sucks. And I had to like try to find different training partners. And I thought, man, this like my dad was always on my case about getting CTE. So I'm just going to have another fight, fight out my contract and then retire. Also, I just felt like I wasn't able to, I felt like people were passing me in the race. I always felt like MMA is a race. How much better and stronger can you get than your opponents? You know, and I felt like I was going to be passed by the young athletes, the 20 year olds who are coming up, you know. Yeah, well, I think it's really good that you you timed that probably just right because man, yeah. CTE is no joke, right? I mean, if you're at the point now where you're you're worried about your health, putting the brakes on it is probably the most sensible thing. And I agree with you 100% about this whole ego thing. You know, they they told me since I was a white belt that jujitsu kills the ego, but that has not been my experience. There are yeah. a lot of jacked up, egomaniacal dudes in the gym who aren't always the safest training partners, and so I th that is an, an interesting thing where I feel like sometimes maybe the reason why it can be dangerous especially in an mma gym like you described is just because there are those egos running rampant and people don't have them clamped down yet or under control right i wonder if there was some reason behind that if they just didn't get beat up enough or if there are just so many people now that more people are sticking with it, whereas they might have quit before. I don't know what the reason is. Yeah, I mean, it could also be a, a name thing, right? I mean, if someone is is new and maybe they're especially new to the sport and they're in there sparring with someone famous, maybe they're just not at the maturity state yet where they can control themselves because uh -huh. it's so exciting. We we talked to Carl Pravik, the, the Silver Fox, really well-known black belt under Henzo Gracie. Oh, the Silver Fox. Yeah. The Silver Fox, yeah. And he's, he's an older guy and he was yeah, on the yeah. podcast talking about how this happens to him because he'll get some young hotshot who comes in there and spars and wants to be able to say he beat up Carl Pravik, right? And so uh, Carl's this older dude who's just trying to go easy and train and have fun and do jujitsu. And then there's some 20-year-old guy in there trying to just beat the crap out of him, right? And you have you have misalignment in terms of what both people want out of the out of the training session. One person wants to train and get better and have fun, and the other person wants to win. Exactly. Yeah. And those are not always uh goals that align with each other. And I, I can imagine, especially in MMA, which is just a very, very competitive sport, I can imagine that that's quite common in gyms indeed 
Do you see that as a a common thing where MMA people just tend to kind of like they want to fight in the gym all the time? Or do you think there's a happy place where it would be possible to have MMA that's as relaxed as jujitsu sometimes is? I think it depends on the person and it depends on the gym. So I've had a lot of great people in my gym. And then I've had some people I've actually told that I couldn't train with them anymore in that same gym. Mm -hmm. So I think it depends. Yeah, I, I, that's something that is always a hard conversation is having to tell someone you don't want to spar with them, right? Because if they ask why, then you kind of have to tell them, well, it's because you, you kind of suck as a training partner and you're dangerous, right? <laughs> yeah. Never a fun conversation to have. Yeah. Oh, can I just mention my my second book? Absolutely. Let's keep going. It's called How to Be Positive mental training by the happy warrior and it is a workbook so i made it so that you can actually write in the book if you so desire and i have 10 different mindsets that i use and then i explain my own examples and then i give example questions to the reader so they can put what they would do so for example chapter 15 is don't reinforce the negativity smile and carry on so i give an example about how I can't, my phone is malfunctioning and I screamed, I hate this phone. I screamed. Then my mom said, don't say hate. And I say, why not? And she said, you're just reinforcing the negativity because that's my mom. (laughs) (laughs) So then for example, an example would be, I bought a new flavor of tea that turned out to be delicious. Unfortunately, I didn't realize that it had a lot of caffeine and I had trouble sleeping that night. The negative statement would be, that stupid tea kept me from falling asleep. And then the positive would be blank. So the reader has to come up with a positive sentence to counteract the negative sentence. I love that. And maybe it would be like, well, so in the morning I have a great tea at least or something like that, you know? I love that. Reframing is just such a powerful exercise. It is very much, you know, as they kind of say, a a lot of it is fake it till you make it, right? Putting on a smile even when you don't feel good. But that actually does have sort of a reverse effect where if you practice positivity and happiness, it's easier to be positive and happy. And I think that's where people sometimes get mixed up, which is they think that happiness is just a thing that you have. It just happens to you. But really, it's like it's like a muscle, right? You work on it, you practice it, and it becomes a habit. And it's just a lot easier to be happy if you've practiced being happy. Yeah, you're right. So I think this is awesome, though, that you've got a workbook type approach. Like, is the whole book a workbook? What are some of the other things that are in there? Yes, it is. Let's see. Let me read you my table of contents. Chapter one, our conscious thought affects our emotions. Number two, chapter two, a sliver of moonlight you can still see. Chapter three, be grateful. Chapter four, focus on the silver lining. Chapter five, don't reinforce negativity. Smile and carry on. Mm -hmm. Chapter six, do the most you can do in your situation. Set goals. Chapter seven, be excited about everything. Chapter eight, try to understand other people. Chapter nine, rules for behavior. Chapter 10, readjust your expectations. I'd love to dig into that last one. Readjust your expectations. What's the story behind that? The story behind that, let me see here. Okay, I'm just going to read the first paragraph here. Have you ever listened to a friend raving about a wonderful, awesome, hilarious movie that he or she saw? You went and saw it, but weren't impressed. Maybe it was because your expectations were so high that the movie couldn't possibly have lived up to them. If you're smart, you'll try not to get your hopes up too high and will instead tell yourself, well, my friend certainly liked this. Maybe I'll like it too. We'll see. If you make a mental effort to lower the level of intensity of your expectations, they will be easier to meet and you may not be disappointed. 
expectations tint your perception bubble and affect how you interpret reality. That's a really, really interesting statement. And I think you're onto something there. There's, there's so much of people out there just expecting that everything's going to be perfect 100% of the time and they're getting pissed off if it's not. And people are just generally not really happy with incremental gains. I mean, jujitsu is a great example of this. You know, white belts are always upset because they're, they're not able to go in there and hang competitively with the purple and brown belts. But man, you should expect that. Of course, you're not going to be able to hang competitively with someone who's been training for eight years when you've only been training for two months. It's about, right. yeah, you got to reframe your expectations. Yeah, that's it. Another example is, if you don't mind, I was going on a trip and I came across a cheap local motel that had non-smoking rooms available for $150. This is like a last minute trip I took. When I got there, it was so tiny, only enough space for two beds, a bureau, and not many amenities. I told myself, I could be driving far away right now, but this is awesome. I'm really close. It's non-smoking, so I won't gag to death in my sleep. The price is better than like 300 bucks. I don't need a fancy exercise room. I just need a cheap bed, so this is perfect. So I went from being disappointed by this little dump to thinking, well, okay, at least my expectations don't need to be high. They should be low. Like, I'm so close. It's cheap. This is great. So I kind of avoided being like super disappointed. Like I felt initially disappointed that it was such a crappy room. And then I was like, well, hang on a second. If I had the other alternative, this is actually way better. So I tried to visualize the more negative alternative and then realized how much better this one was. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all about relativity, right? Happiness is not so much about where you are, but it's about where you are relative to where you want to be. Yes. So it's actually pretty easy to be happy if you can control that relative aspect of where you want to be. That's not to say that you need to have low expectations, but it's that you need to be reasonable and be grateful for what you do have, right? Yes. Awesome. So what about the third book? We we talked about how that goes into the end of your career and just in the last few years where you've wound up. But did you also get into any mindset stuff there? Because I know that people always love to explore mindset stuff. Yeah, I I wrote a so in my third book, my memoirs two book, I wrote a lot about what I was thinking at certain times because it was recent enough in my life that I like could remember what I was thinking, especially in my the last several years. So I was able to include a lot of my thought processes in there. Awesome. Awesome. So maybe some examples. I'd love to know like what kind of things you talked about in there or if there's any uh, learnable lessons that might benefit people out there. The end of my book is really cool. I'm not going to actually read it to you because I want you to you know, <laughs> enjoy it. It's like the end. But I basically went from crying that I lost my fight to being very proud of myself because I realized I accomplished certain things. So that was really cool. A real cool realization that I had. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, even some of the the best athletes that I know, they they talk quite openly about just the the train of emotions that that go through you when you're competing, right? The ups and the downs and the ups and the downs. And everyone I know talks about these kind of like massive emotional swings where one day you're crying and then 10 minutes later you're just in the best mood of your life and yeah. I mean, again, so much of that is just the mental framing in your own head, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So one one last thing I would love to ask is, I mean, what's next for you? You're retired as a competitive fighter. Do you think that at some point you're going to be, are you planning to stay as like a jujitsu instructor or are you planning to move out of the combat sports completely? No, I want to keep doing jujitsu as long as I can. You know, I'd, I'd love more offers to compete in places, grappling, you know, and jujitsu as well. 
I want to do seminars and I want to stay involved in jujitsu, you know, and I'll, I'll train with some of my MMA friends if they ask me to help them. And I'll, I'd love to give MMA seminars as well. Yeah, that would be awesome. Hey, here's a question. If people want to reach out to you and book such a thing, how would they go about doing it? Any of my social media would be fine. I'm usually at Mark Roxy Fighter on Twitter and Instagram. Also, my email address is my name, Roxanne.Modafferi at gmail.com. So that would be awesome. Nice. I'll put those in the show notes too. So if anyone wants to just quickly get in contact, easy way to do it, just hit info, pop it up. The notes will be right there. Awesome. Uh, also, if you don't mind, my website is net, and I have my books for sale on there. I have photos as well, my blog. So it's a cool website. Check it out. <laughs> nice. Now, I always ask whenever we've got a guest, just any closing thoughts, anything that you think on this topic of just happiness and mindset, if you could, I don't know, you have a magic wand, you can change the world, you can change one thing about the jujitsu slash MMA community to make people happier. What would you want people to do differently from what they do now? Oh gosh, read my second book. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good plug. Thank you. Gosh, I don't know. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) All right. Read the second book, folks. And of course, by the way, if anyone wants to check out our stuff, bjjmentalmodels.com is the best place to do that. That's where our premium service is. There's a ton of online material there for both mindset coaching, courses. We also offer rolling reviews and feedback. So if you've got either competition or training videos, we can get that routed to our review team. They do an amazing job of breaking things down. You're going to get a ton of detailed feedback that's way beyond what you normally get just showing up the class. So I highly recommend it. If you haven't already checked out premium, the address is bjjmentalmodels.com. You can give it a try free for one week. So highly recommend everyone check it out. But man, thanks so much, Roxanne, for coming by. I'm really happy that we got this chance to talk. And yeah, it's great to hear from you and hear what you're doing in the next phase of your life. Hoping at some point we can get you up to here on a Vancouver tour because that would be fantastic to meet in person. Yes. Thank you so much for this opportunity. And I would love that. Awesome. Fantastic. And of course, thanks to everyone out there who listens to us as well every week. Greatly appreciated to you as well. Talk to you next time. Take care.